Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 619 with Zaid Ayub. Everybody makes mistakes. I make more mistakes than anybody. The key is, you know, be open about it. Don't, don't try to skirt it under the rug or blame, blame something or, or, or somebody. Hey, you make a mistake, go, step up, it's no problem, we'll, you know, fix it and move on. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. I'm sure you've heard of Revel, but have you heard of the Revel Advantage? It is the payment processing solution that seamlessly integrates into your Revel point of sale and platform to create a complete system tailored to your business needs. Revel manages both your POS and your payments with integrated software, hardware, and credit card processing to save you time and money so you can focus on your business. Learn more at revelsystems.com slash Stoppable. Here is a statistic for you. 89% of all guests will research a restaurant online before dining out. So you've got to start thinking about how you can extend your in-house hospitality and attention to detail to the online world. Bento Box is a great place to start. They will develop a restaurant website that not only leaves lasting impressions with your guests, but also provides hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online and guests into your restaurant. Sign up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. Get on it. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Zaid Ayub. Zaid, are you feeling unstoppable today? Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, that's what we like to hear. So Zaid Ayub has a background in entrepreneurship, angel investing, and startup growth. Today, he serves as Saj Mediterranean's founder and CEO. Currently, Saj Mediterranean consists of nine brick-and-mortar locations, as well as two food trucks, with the goal of having 20 corporate-owned locations in the works by the end of 2020. Saj was recently named one of the top 100 fastest-growing private companies Companies in the Bay Area, and uh, that was by San Francisco Business Times, as well as one of QSR's 40 Under 40, uh, indicating that the industry authorities expect the brand to continue along its trajectory. You're doing a lot of great stuff out there. I cannot wait to dive into your story to find out how you got to where you are today, but let's get that motivational, inspirational, ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Ah, thank you, Eric. Um, I think we want to make people healthier and happier. That is actually our mission. That's our what we do every day. And I think healthier and, and happier people is what the world really needs. Healthier and happier people. How do you plan on doing that? Well, we, we want to do it with uh, having great food, having a great atmosphere, having people uh, like what they do, uh, be very uh, happy with with the with the food, and have very good vibes in communicating what we do, and transcend that too from within to our employees and to our customers. I'm sure we'll dive into the details as this conversation unravels, but for now, uh, let's just kind of get to know who you are and how you got to where you are today. So, I mean, you have a really interesting background. I don't usually have. 
uh, guests on the show who are super involved with the tech world. It looks like you your original profession was semiconductor manufacturing. I don't even know what that means. Take us to where it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm an engineer by education and training. Um, I went to uh, my undergrad is in electrical engineering, and I have a master's in business administration, all from Silicon Valley universities. Started my career in uh, designing and manufacturing chips. ICs, uh, not the chips that we eat, the ICs that we actually use in computers and phones. <laughs> there's, some, there's some commonality I'll get to in just a second. And um, so I worked for big companies uh, in the semiconductor space. Then I had my own company where we designed and manufactured test equipment to test ICs. So our customers were all the semiconductor manufacturers, including companies like uh, Microsoft with their Xbox uh, chips. And we did all of the hardware that they needed to make sure that the chip works the way it's supposed to work, under speed, under different environments, under different temperatures, and so on. And luckily, I we did very well. We exited that business uh, the first time in the year 2000. Uh, we sold it to a publicly private, co- uh, publicly traded company, um, and then that was during the dot com boom. Uh, dot com bust happened, and two years later, everybody's kind of looking for a job. So, and they we ended up actually buying the company back which was kind of a sweet deal for us. Uh, my partner and I built the business again. We acquired a couple of companies along the way and rebuilt the business, uh, became more, more of a global player in the market. And we actually exited the business again in 2006. I stuck around in 2008 and uh, uh, this time we sold to a private equity company. So that gave me a lot of experience of how to run companies, how to start companies, how to acquire companies and how to acquire uh, customers and market share and all, the, all that good stuff. So that all kind of built up to where I am now. Uh, the commonality between the, the tech business I was in and the food businesses, there's a process in, in engineering in semiconductor manufacturing called burn-in. Burn-in is a process where you could you actually age chips or age ICs, and the way you do it is you put it in actual ovens. Literally, you put them in high-temperature ovens. So you take the chips, put them under a certain circuit, put it in an oven and wait a week and see what happens. Well, the common thing that we do now is we bake falafel. So I have a little experience in baking. And that's really uh, kind of my background. Uh, I took a hiatus uh, for a few years and uh, in 2012 started thinking about the food business. Um, the way I got into the food business really is uh, I always thought if somebody does uh, Middle Eastern or Mediterranean food in a consistent and, and fresh and, and high quality. Uh, there's a market for it. Actually, there was a, a shop next to college where I went in Silicon Valley back in the late 80s that uh, had decent falafel and shawarma, but there's a line out the door every day. And that's when I'm, I was looking at, that's when I said, if there's really a good product out there, the market is there. Fast forward 15 years, uh, my wife did her MBA uh, thesis on establishing a Middle Eastern or, or a Mediterranean fast casual concept. And uh, so we, she did a lot of homework in terms of academic and read market research, and that sat on a shelf for about 10 years. So we always had the idea, and uh, I thought 2012, 2013 was the right time to really get into it. Uh, and the way it happened is my one of my co-founders, and I were a bunch of guys basically that got together and said, let's do this thing uh, based on the thesis that my, my wife did. And... Uh, uh, we, the, a few of, two of my, my, my co-founders actually had food backgrounds. So the deal was I will uh, help fund the 
business. I will do a lot of branding work and IT work, but I really didn't know much about the food business. So they were supposed to run the food business, and that's how we actually started. Launched the first location in 2013. Uh, we actually launched the food truck and the brick and mortar pretty much at the same time. It just so happened that the food truck was was ready before the brick and mortar, which is very typical in construction. Um, and uh, we rolled off, and uh, since then, uh, it's been a very, very bumpy ride. I'd like to share a lot with you in terms of the beginnings and, and how what we did well. We did a lot of things very bad. <laughs> we did a lot of uh, wrong things. Uh, we hit a lot of walls, um, but now we're actually having fun. We're on the, in the, on, on a growth uh, uh, path and uh, figured out the product market fit, figured out uh, quality and consistency, and uh, now it's a matter of uh, scaling. Man, I'm taking notes as you're you're talking, and I, I want to dive into a lot of what you shared with us. But one thing I've learned is that behind every great restaurant, every great brand, there's a great person and great people. So what I want to spend our time on first is just learning about who you are uh, as far as how you – the, the lessons you learned in other markets. And what I've learned is there's just so many transferable skills and habits and values that you, you can f- build and form in other markets and, and transfer them to the restaurant industry. So going chronologically, how did you evolve as a professional? What were some of the skills you were learning maybe uh, during the first business you built, you sold it? You, you mean, I'm sure you're, you're learning a lot about how to build businesses and how to treat people. So just take it chronologically and really talk about how you evolved. Uh, yeah, great question. And actually, there's a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of different uh, subsectors that go into that. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, uh, my my even though I'm I'm an engineer in education, but my thesis or my emphasis uh, uh, in, in in the work life and in in masters was really marketing. And it really starts with understanding the customer, understanding the customer's needs, understanding the customer's habits, um, and uh, you know the rule one of marketing is. You know, you, you figure out what the problem is and you actually really solve it. You set expectations and you exceed them. Uh, and you got to be true to yourself. You cannot go out there and try to do something that is not really what the customer wants. Um, in all my businesses, I'm very, very customer-centric. Um, I'm very intimate with customers. The, the, the food business really is one of the... Uh, uh, it's my first experience into retail in a big way. I've done some retail before. But most of my experience before this has been corporate and managing big accounts. And I use that quite a bit in the food business. I'll, I'll talk to about that in just a second. Uh, but first and foremost is understanding the customer and what the customer wants. And really coming up with a solution that truly solves their issue or, or, or uh, a solution that the customer really uh, uh, wants to adopt and, and, and be with you and come back again and again. Uh, the other common factor I would say is people, uh, people and culture. Um, it is as important, if not more important than actually the, the market, the market that you're in, um, in all businesses, whether it's technology, whether it is uh, food business, retail, uh, it's at the end of the day, uh, uh, you've got to make sure that you have the right, uh, uh employees, the right team members, you got to create the right culture and create the right, um, interdynamics of the company to make sure that everybody kind of understands what we're tra- why we're here, what we're trying to do, and everybody kind of marches to the same drum. Uh, and uh, make sure, in my, what I do, and I, I, I take pride in this quite a bit, is I'm extremely transparent, uh, both in terms of uh, treatment with employees, telling them, sharing goals, be very clear about uh, what where we are and where we want to go, and sharing numbers, um, also transparent with the, with the customers. Uh, you got to make sure that 
the customer sees that and knows that we're willing to uh, really open up our books, open up our kitchen in this case, to show them how we do things and what's inside everything that we do. Uh, those two things, I think, are the most important. Uh, and, you know, the food business in specific, which is different than technology uh, in some, in some, in some uh, ways, um, it's, it's, it's a people's business. So we're in the people's business selling food. And I'm sure you've heard that before. And it's definitely uh, uh, very amplified in the, in the food business. Uh, and the other thing about the food business is that it's a grind. It's a, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It is, it is something that you do day in, day out, seven days a week. So uh, in our communication with our uh, team members, uh, we tell them you get a, we force them to take time off. Uh, we force them to take uh, other than just a day or two per week, uh, don't work over hours because they're going to get tired. Uh, it doesn't stop. Um, and unlike the tech business, or at least the companies I had, you know, you have even though we were working all the time, but you have a weekend, and the weekend is a two weekend. So you clock out at five in the morning on Friday, and you don't do anything related to work until Monday morning. Well, that's not the case in the food business. So uh, that's something that I caught on early on, and we make sure that we set the right tempo for the employees uh, and the team members to uh, for longevity. And, and, and it's not a sprint. It's, it's a marathon and we keep going. There's a lot of other things that I could, you know, talk about things yeah. like, you know, financial discipline and accounting. Uh, you know, I've always ran very clean books, uh, which is not very typical in the food business. Everybody has two books. Uh, we don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> we have just the one P&L. Everything goes in there. Uh, we don't deal with cash. Um, I mean, we take cash as a payment, but not within the company in terms of uh, paying people off or any of that stuff. Um, we're very, very clean in terms of books because it's really, for me, the only way to do it, to understand really what's happening and be able to share it with people, whether you share it with your investors or you share it with your senior team members, which we do, by the way, uh, uh, just that they understand what the performance is. Uh, so financial discipline is very important um, across any industry. Uh, you know, I tend to be on the conservative side, so the company has zero debt. Uh, we never got into that. Um, I'd like to have uh, good cash flow, and my belief in any business is if you're generating profit, you're in a good place. You don't have to do anything. You do what you really want to do. Uh, if you're not making money, you know, if you have a runway that's going to, the money's going to run out in a certain time, then you start thinking about fundraising. You have to fundraise, or you have to get a loan, or you have to work on your margins. In our case, obviously, we worry about profitability, but uh, when you're making money, your your back is not to the wall, so you could do anything you want. So you just dropped a um, lot. I, 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 you just dropped a lot, honestly. <laughs> uh, I want to dissect a, a couple of these things. What I grabbed from you was the importance of marketing, understanding the customer, people, and culture, having the right team members on your team, transparency with your numbers, and your vision in good books are so important because that is how you're going to sell yourself. Those clean, good books are how you're going to show people that you, that you got something, and it also helps you win trust again with your people. Uh, so where do you... Out of these four things you just share with us, marketing, people and culture, transparency, and good books, take us through uh, maybe a story from your earlier days where you had to learn one of these things the hard way uh, before getting into the restaurant industry. Um, the, the, uh, uh, let me take the marketing piece because it's probably the easiest one to, to kind of go over. Uh, when we started the first tech business, uh, we were catering to a specific niche of the business, which is the memory group, memory, memory chips, you know, you're familiar with gigabits and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and we were, uh, uh, we provided solutions that are, that are good solutions, but they were me too solutions. They were already available and customers wanted something beyond what's on the market. And we didn't really have the skill sets to go beyond the market. And we started figuring out how do we understand our customer's customer. So we had to, to take some deep dives in technology to figure out where the industry is going and to truly come up with a, a solution that is unique, a solution that the customer wants uh, and even predict what the customer is going to want. Um, so the term, you know, understanding your customer's customers is very important in the technology business because your customer is doing what they need to do to, to satisfy their end user uh, or their, their final user in, the, in, in, in this case. Um, so we learned the hard way that, you know, you're going to go out there and you're going to set expectations. Um, you want to set expectations higher and better than what's available and really be able to deliver on them. Um, something that uh, took us a while to kind of figure and we had to go back and we tweak everything that we uh, have done to be able to do so. I could use the same reference, by the way. I know we're going to talk more about the food business as we go on, but uh, catering for me in the food business is something that we were able to Initially, we were doing catering, but we were a need too. We were just, catering was an extension of an existing restaurant. It was not a full-blown program. It was not, uh, we didn't give it enough attention. We didn't give it enough weight. Uh, and that's one of the things that you learn that, you know, in order for me to succeed in catering, I really got to change everything that I do to become a catering company. And by the way, it's a huge percentage of what we do today. Uh, that we focused on it early on. And the reason I focused on it early on is because I wasn't doing the numbers that I want without catering. So <laughs> it was a need, not just from a, a customer uh, customer acquisition standpoint or growing the market or adding another product line. It was a need because I wasn't making the profitability that I needed to do to grow and scale this concept. So that's another example of really learning uh, as you go to figure out what would work, what would not work. And, you know, I'm, I use marketing you know, on the marketplace as, as an example. Um, I'll share with you a lot of stories about operationally what we had to go through to really get ourselves uh, uh, really on the right track. Yeah. And that's, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave that later on until we get the, into the actual food business. Yeah, I think we'll fast forward to uh, 2012, 2013 in a little bit because I'm really kind of excited to get there and start talking about that. One thing I want to focus on before then, uh, two things actually. You said that you've got to learn what your customer's customer wants. So that makes sense in the tech industry because you're selling products to services that then serve or sell those products to the, the general public. But in the restaurant industry, your customer, who is your customer's customer in the restaurants industry? Can you think of an example where you're one place removed from the, the end product or the end customer? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely, Eric. There's, there's uh, I'll give you a, a few scenarios, actually. Um, catering is a very good example. So uh, even though we do a lot of catering directly to customers, where they order directly from us, either via phone or via our website or via our uh, catering department, but we work with a lot of uh, uh, third-party uh, catering companies. The biggest that you might know of uh, is Easy Caterer, but then there's a ton in the area, Zero Caterer, Caterer to me, there's a whole bunch of them. And really, we the orders come through these consolidators or these third-party uh, marketplaces. And uh, we get the orders from them on a weekly basis. Uh, some of them actually just pick up the product and deliver it. We never touch the customer, other than the customer actually uh, uh, enjoying our food. Uh, the majority of it is we actually deliver the food to the customer, and we interact with the customers, set things up, have the proper labels and descriptions on everything. And 
So this is an example where our customer's customer, uh, our our easy carer customer, is not a customer of me of mine directly. They're actually easy carers customer that's coming through the platform to us. So we need to understand the end user and how that user. Uh, uh, I use the term uh, end user as a technology term, but in the, our customer is uh, end the end user in this case is a company that got the food, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy care, right? Exactly. I got you. Uh, so that's an example. Another example is uh, all of the online ordering uh, platforms, marketplaces, DoorDash, Uber Eats, all of those guys. You know, we don't have the direct communication with the customer. Uh, obviously, we have a lot of customers that order from us directly from our own website. A lot of customers that walk in to our uh, brick and mortar uh, uh, locations. A lot of customers that go to our food trucks. A lot of caterings that we take to customers. But there is also the 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 uh, our customers' customer in this case that we don't that we don't touch or we don't have direct communication with. Yeah, that's um, the one really interesting point about this, by the way, Eric. Before I I, I forget, and I think it's really relevant in in, in the food business. Understanding the behavior of the end user in the food business is very, very key. And that has shifted significantly in the last five to seven years. And I think if you, for me personally, coming from a technology standpoint, that actually gave me a big advantage where I looked at it from a, uh, a newcomer with, with completely, you know, it's, it was blue sky for me. It was complete, you know, it's a white page. I went in there and said, let's figure this thing out. And it was the onset of all of the digital uh, revolution in, the, in food, all the food tech. And what's happened in the last five years, which is really interesting, is people order even big caterings the way they would order a DoorDash or an Uber Eats dinner on a Saturday evening. Meaning, uh, when you order a DoorDash, normally you're home or in the office. But let's say you're home, you're hanging out, you, you know, you're sitting with your family and you feel like having sushi. Uh, so you go on the DoorDash platform and you find the local sushi place and you place an order and the food shows up in 35 to 45 minutes, um, which is cool. This, by the way, was not the case six, seven years ago. The only thing you could pick up the phone and order was pizza, mm-hmm. maybe some Chinese food. So now you could order anything you want from anywhere, any type of food, and it's going to show up in 45 minutes or less. Expensive, not expensive, besides the point, but that's what people are doing. What happened is because of these habits, People now order catering for the office in the exact same manner. So an admin order has a lunch for somebody. It used to be that if you have a lunch next Tuesday, you know, seven days from now, you would call the, the restaurant, you'd go meet with the manager, you'd sit down and you'd draft what you want to give you a menu and then a proposal and you negotiate and then, you know, you'd have to plan it and prepare it and all that. Well, that was the case maybe 2010. Today, we get orders on Sunday evening for a lunch for 65 people on Monday at noon that the admin forgot to order on Friday. And, and, and that's really understanding your customer's customer, understanding the behavior and what they do. So we really had to change how we do catering to be able to accommodate orders within four hours. You could today order from us in the Bay Area in any location, uh, two or 300 person catering within four hours and the product would show up. Wow. So now you don't really care. You don't care where it comes from, right? What you care about is the product being there. And the, the, the point here is the habits of people have changed where you order now and you want the food now and you expect the right quality and you expect all that transparency, which has shifted, totally shifted the, 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 the food market in the last five years. Five so- to again, just understanding your customer's customer. And then there's just such potential in, uh, especially in the delivery in, uh, 
in catering business to exceed expectations because I feel like a lot of restaurants, what they'll do is they'll package the food up and that's where they stop. They, they, they get it out the door and that's where the, the thinking stops. It's out the door. But how can we exceed expectations? What are the little things we can do in packaging that so when it arrives to where it's going, it's the best possible user experience? What kind of things are you doing to create really great user experiences when that delivery or that catering gets to the customer that most people don't do. Can you give us an example there? Is that, is that one of the things that you guys are focusing on is that user experience? Uh, how the, like the, the packaging, the, the, does it, does it travel? Well, is it pretty when we open it, when it gets to the location, is that the kind of stuff you're talking about? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, the, the, so everything, we're very organized. The back end of this is, was, is engineered. Let me put it this way. Engineered in a way where we make sure that we only offer the product that travels well. And luckily, the food sector that we're in, you know, shawarma, uh, kebabs, hummus, salads, uh, breads travel very, very well. Uh, one thing does not travel well is falafel. Uh, falafel is fried. It's like French uh, fries. Some people you bake it. Soggy, you know, right? we go, uh, yeah, like, exactly. It's yeah. like French fries. So it doesn't travel well. And we tell customers, you know, we, we, we're, we're playing with different formulations, with all kinds of stuff to try to make it nice and moist. And we package it in its own little bag and all this stuff. And we have it, you know, perforated and... It just an hour later, this falafel is not going to be as good as as is fresh. It mm-hmm. just there's no two way about it. And but other than that, the majority of what we offer is is uh, travels very well. Um, we uh, so what we do the execution of the catering is very key. Uh, everything is cooked generally within an hour or two before uh, it gets to the customer, including travel time. So we have a holding oven or canvas, if you will, for all the items after they're cooked before they actually go into the delivery uh, uh, bag. Obviously, the bags we use industry standard. We try to get the best out there. We're looking at different s- solution right now for packaging where you have uh, better uh, control over temperature and humidity uh, in transit. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, the way we have today is okay. The second part of the experience is once the food gets to the, to the, to the uh, customer, whether it's in a coffee room or a home, you know, we like to do the setup. We like to, we send people we send our own staff employees, and by the way, these are not drivers. These are generally the the catering coordinator and his or her team members that go out there. And the nice thing about the way we set up the business is that these team members, when they come back to the to the to the store, they're actually working the line. So they're not like just coming in to do this. They're not drivers. They're they're our own uh, full time employees. They understand the food so well. We're very key, uh, very particular about labeling. Every item has a complete nutrition facts, uh, vegan, you know, dairy-free, nut-free, all that good stuff, along with the calorie counts and, and uh, any allergens. Uh, not only it's published on our website, but it is with every delivery for every item. So the reason we like to go in there and set the, the, the actual catering up is we set it up in a certain way that will give the customer the best user experience, again, in terms of the flow of the product and what you put first and what you put second and so on. And everything is very, very well labeled. Um, Can I just interject clear, real quick uh, there? I, I want to put emphasis on this. Uh, really, what you're doing is you're being proactive, not reactive. And I think that's something that gets lost in catering and delivery is you you don't think about the guest's needs once it leaves the door. You know, you don't once it goes out that front door, you just or the back door, however it's getting there, you just kind of forget about it. But you are going as far as anticipating everything that a guest would need as if they're in your own 
restaurant standing in front of you, looking at the calorie counts, looking at all these things. You're being proactive and really just caring about the guests is what I'm hearing from you. And I'm loving this conversation. Um, I, I kind of want to move to, I want to get your, your, your startup story and how you, you brought this, this vision to fruition. Is there anything else you want to touch on regarding uh, catering and delivery and thinking about your customer's customer before we take a quick break? Uh, no, absolutely, Eric. That's that's uh, uh, absolutely correct in terms of anticipating and planning it out. I'll add one more thing, by the way, is we send out surveys for every customer, every catering customer that we touch. So within a week, they're going to get an email from us. Uh, we serve a monkey, simple, you know, we could uh, trend things and all of that. And we seek feedback. And that so, was, you said uh, survey it's, monkey it's, that you it's, used, it's, just to make sure the listeners got that? Yes. Got you. I'll link yeah, to that in the show correct. notes. And, uh, and it's really cool because, you know, we, we send the questionnaires, you know, they rate us one through five. There's, you know, we keep it simple because we really want to get the response. And then we trend this stuff. We could look at uh, quality. We could look at uh, quantity of the food. We could look at delivery, uh, uh, appearance of the of the staff, all of that stuff. And we do it for every single catering that, that we do. Now, we don't get responses for every single one, but, but that's... that's that was going to be my, my question. How do you incentivize people actually opening the survey and taking it because I'll be the first person to admit that I hate surveys and I almost never take them because I just don't have the patience, but I'm not, everyone's like me, but how, what would you do to get somebody like me to actually open and take the survey? Do you provide any incentive there? No, you know, we don't, I, I wish we, we do. Um, we, we could, we have reward systems, by the way, uh, loyalty on regular meals, but not on catering. Um, I, I wish there is, I mean, we, we probably will put something in place in terms of the reward system. Uh, and our return rate, by the way, is, is roughly one in five, which is 20% actually fill out the survey, which, which is, is very for high. A survey, for a survey, for a survey, business. very high. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good but because, because you, you know, there, there, there were, they're not just a customer that we don't know. They're people that we deal with and we touch and, you know, we go there and we feed them and, you know, so we know them on, 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 on a lot of them we know on first name basis and they know my marketing and, and my catering team very well. So, uh, obviously, we do thousands of these, but uh, uh, a lot of them that do respond are the ones that are probably, I would say, closer and more frequent. Uh, they want to come back and they want to order again, so they would like to put in you know, their feedback. And we take it to heart, by the way. I mean, we, we actually execute on this stuff. I love it. Data is amazing. Yeah, so is, yeah. The last little bit of knowledge there is get the data, get the knowledge, you know, Send those surveys out. It's easy. Uh, it's called SurveyMonkey. It's just one of the many tools that are out there. I know SurveyMonkey has a free uh, a free level, so anybody can get in there and, and start leveraging uh, these. And all SurveyMonkey is is a survey tool. It helps you build surveys and uh, email these surveys to you, your end user to get that data. And I've loved this conversation. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to dive into how you pulled off uh, Saj so Mediterranean. this probably does not come as a surprise to you, but as you can imagine, I look at a lot of restaurant websites because I'm constantly researching my next guest, successful restaurateurs, and you'd be surprised how many of those people have bento box websites. I mean, I almost know instantly when looking at these websites because they're always so stunning and they always check every box, everything that a good restaurant website should have. 
these websites have them and it's because they're going to bento box to get the work done and not only will bento box leave a lasting impression with your guests but bento box websites come with hospitality focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online with bento box you can easily update menus promote events share press sell gift cards take catering orders and book private events directly from your website bento box puts you in control so you can focus on what matters most your restaurant bring your restaurants hospitality online with bento box by signing up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. All right, we're back and we're, I want to dive into your story of creating this vision, bringing this, this vision to fruition. You said you took a, a two year hiatus uh, and you can't, and then it was in that, that year, that two years that you said, well, I really want to pursue this food and beverage thing. Take it from that point. Uh, sure. So uh, basically what happened is uh, my wife told me to get out of the house <laughs> <laughs> after I was playing golf for, for a couple of years. So was, that was one of the motivations. Actually, that's probably a bigger motivation, but, uh, yeah, so we got into the food business, and by the way, I mean I, I hate to say this, uh, but I, I it's a tough business, and I tell anybody that asks me if they everybody wants to get into a restaurant business, they think it's sexy, it's nice, it's and I tell them don't do it unless you really know what you're getting into, don't do it. It's a grind, it's a tough business, and I found I knew that, but I kind of found that out the the hard way. So so myself and a, and a uh, uh, few other guys got together and we funded the company and said let's go and have fun with this thing. Um, so we actually, the plan was to do three locations and, uh, uh, one food truck at the, from the get go. So we started out very, very strong and, uh, the first store opened in 2013, um, in Menlo park and, uh, two story, uh, we opened, uh, on a Thursday. Uh, it was, we opened at 11 o'clock. So at 11:47 exactly, a gentleman walks in and goes, uh, how long have you guys been open? And I was working the floor, you know, with the uniform and just greeting people and all of that. And I told him 47 minutes. And he goes, <laughs> I don't mean today. Honestly, he goes, I don't mean today. Uh, I mean, how long have you been in business as, as a company? And I said, well, this, we just opened 47. No. <laughs> and he goes, so how many stores do you have? And I said, this is our first store. And his third question was, can I invest? And I said, okay, I've never seen this guy. I mean, by the way, he did invest. Uh, wow. But uh, to us, it was wow. I mean, we're really onto something. Uh, we're really onto uh, creating a Chipotle with Middle Eastern food. That's exactly what we wanted to do. Um, and by the way, I respect Chipotle. Like, uh, they're just incredible uh, what they've done and what they're doing now. So really, we, we learned a lot from them. And we kind of configured the line to be similar and the same experience. People already know it. And it's, it's a different food. And we have more offerings. We have more catering. You know, we're kind of more specialized. But... Uh, so we said this thing is scalable. Let's go do it. So we want this thing is. Uh, I mean, uh, sorry, uh, it's uh, acceptable. People like this stuff. So uh, fast forward about a year, we had three open locations uh, with one food truck. There was nobody managing the business, and everybody's managing the business. You know, I got into this really just as an investor. I brought in a lot of my friends to invest. Uh, I'm a marketing guy. I'm a tech guy. I don't know much about the food business, so I wasn't going to run this thing or claim to run it. And, Unfortunately, all the other partners, which are very good restaurateurs and successful by their own right, kind of had day jobs. So this was kind of a side thing. So for about a period of a year or so, we were kind of running without really good direction. There was no full-time you know, management. We had a lot of employees, but 
you know, having taken for easy without the right leadership or the training is is uh, not necessarily a good thing. Um, and it was tough. It was really tough until the end of 2014. So now we're about two years into this. Um, and we had to, to make some really hard decisions. Um, I, if, if it wasn't for the people I kind of brought in and, and all the money that we have invested, I probably would have just punted. I would have said, you know what, this is not for me, and we go back to technology. But I was, you know, I knew the concept is great. I knew that we had very good food. Uh, we had very good recipes. We just didn't have procedures. We didn't have the proper discipline in the company. We didn't have the proper leadership. We didn't have the proper culture, which is really hard things to do. But unfortunately, we're in a position where we either go in there, I go in there and just throw off my sleeves and do this full time, 24-7, or let go and you know pray that it's going gonna, it's gonna to last. All right, Zay, this is where so, I pull back uh, layers. This is where I, I tap the brakes and go deeper. Uh, you said you know, when you started, you, you had a good concept, a good uh, – you knew what the customers wanted, your food. You had something, but what you did not have was the procedures, the discipline, and the culture. Uh, you said you had everybody – managing and no man and no managers right uh, i think is how you said it so how did you take us through what you did starting with uh identifying that you were kind of like hurting cats it sounds like it, there was just no organization you had the product but you didn't have any consistency you didn't have the systems processes procedures protocol how did you get in there and start making these changes how did you get that order well you know it, it was uh, very tough times it was it was you know it, it, that's when we had I had sleepless nights trying to figure out how to do this and quite frankly we did it in a very cordial and ginger way uh, it took a little longer than it could have but you know all of these people it's not that they don't care they really care a lot and, uh, and it's not that they're not capable they're very capable it just uh, the priority wasn't there so the it was what a matter wasn't of there? setting up priorities the priorities priority it, was, okay. it wasn't their priorities um, and uh, slowly started hiring the right people in the right places uh, starting with the chef, uh, you know, we we had we always had great food. By the way, it's we always we our recipes were excellent. Execution of the food was always good. But then when you get a professional chef, by the way, he comes to us from the Four Seasons. Um, he was in uh, Damascus, and then he was in the in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates with the IHG group, with the Intercontinental Group for about seven years. So he knows the food inside and out, and he's corporate, so he understands quality and sense consistency, manufacturing, production, delivery. And he's actually in charge of all the food now. Uh, we've got the right operating people uh, that are dedicated, uh, obviously, working this full time. We put in a lot of procedures, a lot of, uh, you know, checklists, uh, and started a new tempo of having a weekly meeting with all the managers. Um, and in the weekly meeting, we'll go over financials, we'll go over uh, operational procedures, over new items, we go over problems and issues. It was every Thursday at 2 p.m. We sit down for an hour or two or three, whatever it takes. So we started really getting the, the, the processes going in the, in the right way. Uh, the biggest decisions that I did, quite frankly, is I shut down two units. And very expensive, very, very expensive. We were in a very popular shopping center uh, in, in the South Bay here in the, in the Bay Area uh, that was extremely expensive. And we were I was flattered to be there because we were between... Uh, Chipotle on one side, and if you heard of a concept called Super Duper, which is a very, very hot, really great hamburger concept out in the Bay Area. And we're in between them and the food court. So I was very honored to be there. But we were too young. We didn't have the, 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 the brand was young. It was great exposure, but we didn't, we didn't know what we're doing. We, I didn't have the right team and the right 
volumes and the volume control. So we shut down that unit. That was very expensive. I shut down. I sold another unit in an area that was not uh, our best demographics. Uh, it's good demographics, but it was uh, a small neighborhood that didn't have the pull, didn't have the, the footfall of the traffic. So, Zaid, I want to make sure. Know, I want to make sure I'm with you. So, in 2013, you opened with one unit, and by 2014, you opened two additional units and a food truck, and you closed two of those okay. units. How long did it take you from opening to closing those two additional units? Well, one of them, one of them was uh, about a year, and the other one was about six months. So, and um, within we a year building, and six months, but, a year but, and a half, but you, Eric, we were with you. Yeah, we, but we were building. We were building two more units at the same time. Oh wow! So that we were funded. Yeah, we were funded to go to five, and that's when I started getting the the, the jitters, if you will. You know, that's when I'm not sleeping at night. I'm like, wait a minute, this is not. It's not working with three units. It's never going to work with five. And I looked at these two units and said, you know, one of them is way too expensive. The other doesn't have the potential. But meanwhile, we're building the other two. So we figured, okay, let's really retract. You know, get our our uh, organization out of control. Really put the procedures in place, train the people properly, have very good general managers. They're going to go and then open up these two more units that we think are in better demographic, the better areas that we thought the potential is going to be much better. And by the way, I'm glad we did that decision because those units are performing very, 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 very well today. Yeah, actually, one of them is one of our number one AUV uh, last year. So, uh, and so it was. In hindsight, it was a good decision. Uh, we kind of regrouped. Uh, uh, slowed back, slowed down, and really relaunched in a much more organized, much more uh, systematic way with the proper people and uh, the right management, you know, the right, yeah. the right uh, team members. I, I want to dive in here a little bit because of what you explained. It, you, it, what happened in your story is a very uh, sped up version of what I see happening when people try to scale their businesses, uh, they, they, they think of outward growth before they think of inward growth. And they think we need more locations and we're just going to go get those locations and then we'll put people into them. But that's the backwards way of doing things. You got to focus on building internal growth, developing the people that you already have, fine tuning all of your systems, processes, procedures in that one location. And then you get your carbon copy, your chassis, your, your outline of how things are supposed to work. And you only open the next location when you've run out of opportunities for the people that are already like that are in that, that one spot. So when you have grown people and they need opportunity, that's when you open the second location because you built you start running out of places to put people because they're all so they're all rising to the top, right? Is that a safe sta- statement? Is that kind of what you did the second time? You built your people and your systems first, and then you plug them into the next location. I, Eric, I probably couldn't have said that better. We're 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 that's right on one hundred percent. And uh, today we, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, today we don't open a new location until we have identified who's going to run it, and it's going to fit a, a whole bunch of criteria for us. But all of our general managers of all of our units in Northern and Southern California come from within. We haven't hired a general manager from outside the company. We, you know, people come in, they start, you know, on, on, on a line or, or, or a individual contributor, they become supervisors, they become caring managers or caring coordinator, then they become a GM or assistant GM, and then we get assistant GMs to new stores. So uh, it's, they're all from within 100%. We make sure that we have the right people before we open the, the locations. Um, and we make sure that our systems can function. So, you know, when we had three units, it was easy. We, we were, everything is within seven miles or 10 miles. 
uh, were centralized. Everything will come to one commissary, all the food, all the dry goods, and we distributed ourselves. Well, when we went to the fourth location, which happened to be in San Francisco, which is about 30 miles away or 25 miles away, that system doesn't work anymore. So we moved away from us handling everything to starting to rely on uh, broadband distribution, if you will, uh, for the stuff that we can buy directly from suppliers. We started, so we changed our distribution network where we had about 20 items that we make in our own commissary that we deliver, but everything else comes from local suppliers. Uh, that worked really cool until we got to seven or eight units. And then our commissary needed to be upgraded. Can you give me an example um, of, or can you give me some idea of how much time has elapsed? So 2013 to 14, you opened, or sorry, 2013 to 15, you had opened a total of three units. You closed two. When did you make it a second attempt at opening additional units? End of 2015. End of 2015. Um, Correct. So going in, okay. We had those un- under construction anyway. So, so you just yeah. kind of put a pause on that and you you were retaining the, the, the retail space, but you weren't doing anything with it. Correct. Got That's you. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, 2000, so basically for the past – so you spent more or less two and a half years, um, three years – fine-tuning, developing your people, and then it was in the past three years that you've really been focusing on scaling. Um, one thing I would like to, to kind of go in deeper on is that process of developing procedures and checklists and the, the impact these things had. Um, you know, It was kind of like mayhem before, organized mayhem to... And you, you talked about discipline, too. I want to know how you develop discipline. What things do you do to develop discipline and... Um, and how did you prioritize implementing systems and processes? Yeah, very, very, very good question. Um, just a small comment. Uh, yeah, from, from 2015 onwards is when we really started scaling big time. And that's okay. where we got the, the, the one of the fastest growing uh, private companies in the Bay Area. It was the year 2015 to 2017. Got you. And I hope that we'll be able to this, we'll do it again in 2016 to 18. Actually, the growth for us 16 to 18 is even higher than, than the previous years. Um, uh, so yes, that, so to, and, and, and to put things in context, that's exactly how it is. It took us two years to figure things out. So uh, procedures. So we basically, in 2015, um, wrote all the procedures. We had procedures, but they were on somebody's hard drive somewhere, and somebody has a hard copy, and you know that kind of thing. So we put everything in one location. We put an exerted uh, effort for a couple of months to really write procedures for everything, including videos and pictures. And we made it. We made sure that we well, have a training manager, by the way. We have a corporate person that goes and trains and, uh, and he goes around. And whenever he's done with the training for a store, he goes to the next one. So he will be at a store once a quarter training and detraining. And that's a continuous process, by the way. Um, we implemented uh, in terms of, uh, so training is one thing. The other thing we realized, which is very, very key, uh, not all restaurant businesses are the same, but our concept at, at least is we are an open concept, which means, you know, you see the kitchen, you see uh, everybody working. Uh, we don't have front of the house and back of the house. It's all team members. And once you look at our employees and they are actually touching every customer, um, every employee touches the customer, you start thinking of the employees different than, you know, a dishwasher and a cook. You look at them as brand ambassadors. You look at them as uh, salespeople, really at the end of the day. They're, they're really the ones touching the customer and carrying the brand. They're the ones who are your face to the customer. They're the ones on the front line. So you start looking, thinking about them differently. You know, thinking about a salesperson, well, you know what? You've got to train them. You're going to make sure they understand the product inside and out. You're going to make sure that they communicate well. You're going to make sure that they are pleasant. 
You're going to make sure that they are uh, uh, their appearance and attire is very important, and we pay them better. So all of a sudden, we started this culture where the team members are they are the brand and they are the ones who are carrying it through. So we spend a lot of time training. We spend a lot of time uh, uh, going over checklists and guiding them. Uh, and a, from a different perspective, though, we put two things in place in 2015 that I thought were extremely powerful. Actually, maybe not until the beginning of 2016. So our chef goes out and does an audit on every unit once a month. And it's kind of like the health department audit, only a lot tougher. Uh, in other words, if, if our general manager passes the test or the audit from the, our chef, for sure they can pass the health department uh, uh, audit. So that includes uh, food handling, uh, things like date codes and rotation, food uh, cooking and uh, procedures and following how things are supposed to be done. That includes uh, attire. That includes, you know, hairnets and caps and that kind of stuff. Includes cleanliness, hygiene, the whole nine yards. And th- so that's done. And, and now, by the way, we use a technology, which I'll talk about in just a second. It's all digital stuff. So as you go in there, you put this on, on through this app, and then everything shows up on a dashboard. And that's public information for for the manager and his supervisor and the corporate office to see. Um, so that that really played a huge role in making sure that we are compliant with what the corporate or what we're trying to do. Uh, that was the first thing. The second thing is we did is we put in a bonus structure Wait, for every manager. Real quick, what was the first thing? Just paraphrase the first thing real quick. I want to make sure I got that. The uh, in terms of uh, the the chef audit. Okay, got you. So the so, first thing you did was you you had the chef audits, and what was the second thing? Well, let, 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 me, let me give you the chronology. So what we did first is we made sure that the employees or the managers are trained and have the tools to do their job right. Got you. That's it. So that's the, the training and the, make, the capability, the capacity building, if you will. Then we put the uh, uh, compliance piece. Okay, we're going to make sure that you're doing this. this so we're going to come and do an audit and make sure that you're doing what you need to do in the store property. Um, so, so it's a check and balance kind of thing. So you, you, I believe you need to train people and give them the data and the information and the know-how. And we need to come in and make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to do with the audits. Uh, and we tied their bonus structure to the performance of the store. And there's things they can't control that things cannot con- they cannot control. We don't measure them on things that they cannot control. We only measure the stuff that you can control. And things that you can control is to make sure that you do a good grade on the chef's audit, which means you're rotating product properly, your food is good, your food handling is good, your uh, uh, store is clean, that kind of stuff. They can control their food cost, they could control their labor cost, and they can control the customer experience. And the customer experience is very simple for us. We, you know, the secret shoppers and all kinds of services you could get, we just rely on Yelp. Yelp is a great platform for us because it's open, it's live, and you get to see what's going on. So, so the, 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 the bonus structure for every general manager relies on their chef audit, and that's a big percentage of it. Are you passing or not passing the food quality and, and procedures? How well are your customers liking you? Do you have a four stars or better out of five on Yelp? Are you meeting your goals with food costs and meeting your goals in labor costs? The second two are operational. They're simpler for us to go in there and figure out. We could monitor that on a daily basis. It's really making sure that the manager is in tune with what we're trying to do as a company, as a whole. Uh, so we, that's how we put the checks and balances together. 
And uh, obviously with a lot of training and a lot of meetings, you know, we have meetings now, we're just too big. So we do it on every other week. And we sit down with all of the GMs and, and hash things out and figure out what's going on. And they're hurt. And by the way, they make the decisions on what we're going to do, not me. Uh, they're, they're a part of, they are the company. Uh, they, uh, I have a very good ex- inclusive culture. And for example, writing our vision and mission statement on our, our core values was actually done by the managers. It wasn't, it was, a, it was everybody put his own thing and then we voted on it as a, as a company. It didn't come from, you know, a foreign person from corporate telling you this is how, this is what we're here for. No, no, you need to tell me why you're here for. So all, all that resulted in a very, very good work environment, great culture. And uh, our retention rate is phenomenal. I mean, on, on the managerial level, nobody has left the company since 2015. Man, uh, I'm loving what you're sharing with us, man. Uh, really, the, the big takeaways I'm getting from this and the words of Danny Meyer coming to my head, that constant gentle pressure uh, of, you know, you don't just go in and do these things once and expect them to stay that way. It takes constant gentle pressure of you know, of centering that, that salt in the middle of the table, putting things in place, and you accomplish that by having uh, one person dedicated to training. You're giving the people the tools and the, the, the things they need, and they're going uh, revolving quarterly to different locations to make sure that the, that everything's being set that the, the people are getting what they need then you also have uh the chef coming in doing the audits basically people like exceeding the the standards that even the government has put on us uh and really just you know locking those things in and constantly recentering that salt and then again just to put the emphasis on giving the people the tools you need to, or they need to be successful uh one thing that you mentioned i want to go into a a little bit more, actually, two things. First, um, you mentioned the tools that you're using to uh, these, these videos and images and the checklist. You're, what what software are you using to to host all that? How are you keeping? Where are these things living? What tools are you using? Excellent, excellent. So, so uh, simply when we started, we were using simple things like Google Drive, uh, Google Calendar, um, to, and everything is digital, so everything is in either videos and, and we have it's all indexed which is really cool. So if you want to go and see your store opening procedures, you just click one link and it takes you there and you see everything. You want to see how we prepare hummus or how we prepare falafel and how we cook it. Same thing. You go to cooking instructions, you go to that tab and it's all, and and you go there. Now we just uh, implemented a new tool for us called Zenput, Z-E-N-P-U-T. Zenput. And yes. And what Zenput is, is basically a whole bunch of checklists that you customize uh, to do uh, your operations. Uh, so basically, it has links to our Google Drive. And for example, we use it for a few things. So the chef's audit is done through Zamput. So he goes in there. And what, what that means, by the way, is that there's an iPad in every store that's a Zamput app, uh, uh, iPad. It is, or a tablet. It's not an iPad, it's just a tablet. And what it is, is basically the operation engine of that store. So when you come in the morning, there's opening procedures. Once you're done, you go check. Yes, it's done. If it's, if it's not, if you don't check it, somebody's going to call you to make sure that you did what you're supposed to do. The chef's audits go on it and it has uh, action items. So if somebody has, for example, the uh, table is checked or uh, somebody wasn't wearing their hair uh, the chef would put it in their audit and it, there's an actionable item that goes out to the manager and their supervisor and the corporate office and you have a week to get it fixed. If we don't get a response within a week, it's going to trigger you again. Uh, the, the cool thing, one cool thing that we just launched about a month ago, and I think we're one of the first companies to do this, is we have our thermometers now, uh, they're Bluetooth thermometers, and we open the line at 11 o'clock, so at 10.45 in the morning, 
we are expecting to get readings on all of our food dwells, hot and cold, in a certain sequence. So the manager goes in and puts the thermometer and where they're supposed to go over, let's say, 10 different uh, uh, food wells, and that automatically goes through and put to a dashboard that tells us exactly what the temperature of that particular uh, item at 10.45 in the morning. We do it again at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when there is a shift change. So this way we know that the food is being held at the proper temperature live. And if something is not correct, if it's above the range or below the range, it's going to be in red and somebody's going to get a phone call from somebody. Awesome. So, so that's the... the that's that's them by the way yeah so the tool that we're using there these are great tools i know another one similar to that is called jolt there's tools and services out there that you can use to uh you know maybe on day one you don't need these things it takes time to get your systems processes procedures locked in once they're locked in cement them with these tools and these services uh that really just create rigid rigidity so you, you you don't drift over time, and it's just a really great way to track and make sure once you when you when you've scaled that everything's being done consistently across all all boards. Um, the other thing that I want to dive into is getting your managers in tune. How did you get your managers in tune and uh, really start humming along there? You know that's uh, I, I I very good question, Eric. And honestly, I cannot pinpoint an exact thing. It's a combination of a whole bunch of stuff, and I don't know what worked more than one, what, what what didn't work. And I think it's different from person to person. Uh, but in in general, um, providing training, uh, being there with them, um, being transparent um, on all levels, and really creating a good work environment. Uh, I think uh, you know you want people to be happy coming to work, and you know I tell them, listen, everybody makes mistakes. I make more mistakes than anybody. The key is. You know, be open about it. Don't don't try to skirt it under the rug or blame blame something or, or or somebody. Hey, you make a mistake, cool, step up. It's no problem. We'll you know fix it and move on. If you do it again and again, then we get concerned because it becomes a chronic issue. Is there something that we need to change? Is it a process change? Is it uh, 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 an attitude change? What is it that's going wrong? But it's really establishing that openness, that transparency. Um, you know, it's really building a team. Yeah. Um, creating that culture where people and, and feel I, I that they can come to you and they, they know right. you won't get blown up. You won't, you won't, you won't lose your cool if, if there is a problem. And if you create that culture right. where people know that you're going to get pissed off or angry if there's a mistake, then guess what? All those mistakes, all those problems will get swept under the rug. And, I mean, that's what happens when you lose transparency in an open culture. I think the other thing that you did that was right. really impressive was that you gave your managers the ability to contribute to the – to the culture, to the core values, to the the mission, right? And they, they have a sense of ownership. So now you're not dictating. Right. You're letting them contribute to what the future looks like, and then there's a sense of ownership. Talk about in line, in right. tune. When when the people that are there got to build it, now now there's a level of pride that's associated with that. They're not just being put into the system. They're, they are a part of the system, right? Correct. 100%. Hundred percent. It's it's uh, it's a, it's have, uh, having it as an uh, inclusive culture, and you know I tell them this all the time. I'm here to do what they want me to do. I mean, I mean, I, I have the vision. I know where we're going. You know, my job is to provide uh, resources and uh, really make sure that we're scaling and give them all the tools that they need. But they run the business. It's not me. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm open all years, all the time. You know, and they, a lot of times we say no for different reasons, but. In general, it is it is them and the and it, the sense of camaraderie is really really cool. I mean, we we didn't have it 
we didn't have it before. Now, you know, uh, I would say within the last couple of years, we built a really good sense. And everybody's happy for everybody. You know, it's it's a good culture. And, you know, and we do a lot of outside activities. Uh, I'm not big on, you know, this bonding stuff. And But we do a lot of activities outside. We go out to, you know, have drinks. We go out and do, uh, we have a huge Christmas party. We invite the whole families. And, you know, we, we do some of that. Uh, like I said, it's, it's, uh, it's it's the team members that are gelling and 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 listen. If some every 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 day there's one location or one store that's not doing as well, and yeah, you know what? It's it's the way it is. It's just it's always going to be the case. You know, our job is to all pitch in to go fix it, make sure that we help, and you know, figure out. You know, again, is this something chronic or is this a one-off? And I'll fix it and move on. So, Zaid, I think you brought us the current times. Uh, you are now at nine locations with the uh, gold open twenty in the next year. Uh, so, or in the next two years, what is your strategy? What is your plan to maintain this sense of culture, the sense of pride, the sense of um, the word you use was camaraderie? How do you, as you as you scale, as you add more people? to the equation, how do you plan on retaining that? You know, that's one of the things that actually, I don't want to say keeps me up all night, uh, at night, but it is one of the main concerns is how do you scale the culture? Uh, scaling the process and the food is easy. I mean, to me at this stage, um, that's just procedural. It's, it's the culture and the, and the camaraderie that's the issue. So, so we're, we have two units under construction right now. We're about to sign another three leases. And, you know, happy to tell you for those two units that will open within the next two to three months, I already have the people identified. We already have the manager. They've been, or, they've been with us for a very, very long time. And I think they'll be able to uh, carry the, the, the culture. So for the next three or four units, I'm really, we're good. Uh, now it's a matter of how do you transcend this over 20 units versus, you know, the nine units and the trucks that we have today. And the other challenge, obviously, is how do you do this across regions? So we're very heavy in the Bay Area. We do have a couple of locations in Orange County. We're scaling uh, Southern California as well, and we're trying to build that culture in 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 that in that region as well. Um, so it's it's a challenge. I think what we'll do is we'll probably have to have more uh, kind of like what we did in 2015, uh, have more meetings, have more regular meetings, have meetings that are probably touching more on the human and the and the social aspect of things. Uh, you know, we we just hired our first director of HR. So she would probably be very active in, in training and making sure that things are, are being done the same way. Um, and, you know, it's not all lovey-dovey, by the way. There's got to be uh, uh, checks and balances. Uh, we went to this great training, by the way, called PALS uh, in, in the Midwest that, about a year ago. It's about quality and, and how you do things accurately and perfectly 100% of the time, all the time. Uh, 100% of the effort all the time. But anyway... They, they, they have something called a checklist, which is when you hire somebody, you kind of set the guidelines. And it's, it's very cordial. It's done in a very nice way, but it's very simple stuff. It's stuff like, you know, if your shift starts at 3 o'clock, we expect you to start at 3 o'clock, not at 2.59 and not at 3.01. And by the way, when you come to clock in at 3 o'clock, you already went to the bathroom, you're already in uniform, and your, your phone is already stored away. So it's, it's that kind of stuff. You know, things like, you know, we don't condone swearing. You know, that's not something that's acceptable. And it, it's kind of, you have a handshake at the end of this. It's not, ours is about, a, it takes about an hour. It's probably about 20, 25 points. And uh, it's kind of, it kind of sets the tempo. It sets the culture. Um, and basically have a handshake at the end of this orientation uh, after you finish the checklist. And at that time, the, the employee, the new employee realizes that 
you know, this is what they expect from me. And they're very clear about it. So when they, if and when they don't do something that's outside that checklist or not in compliance, you know, the manager sits them down or her down and say, listen, we agreed on this, right? And what happens is when, when this becomes a standard, uh, at least at the ground level, everybody's kind of acting in the same way. Um, it's, it's, it's operational excellence, you know. So I think it's going to be a combination of both, you know, having more procedures, having more communication and checklists and making sure people understand, but also, you know, working hard on making sure that everybody is uh, trained well, everybody is excited and, you know, and I'm sure we're going to go through ups and downs. There are going to be times that are better than, than others. It, my job is to try to keep it uh, all intact and get everybody kind of moving in the right direction. But it is, it is definitely a concern for me. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think it's going to be as easy as it is to go from, you know, two units to nine units. Yeah. So the other thing that you're hoping to do is continue to source uh, your food from locally operated family farms. Uh, as you scale... And as you get further away and, and you enter into new markets, you have to develop new relationships with, with new farmers. And obviously all these different farmers are going to have their different standards, uh, different ways of doing things. How do you plan on uh, streamlining the the way you do business with these farms uh, in different geographics? And I mean, what I think I know that's a huge challenge for people who take pride in uh, sourcing locally in sourcing from family farms, but I mean, you don't have control over the processes across all those boards and the relationships. I mean, what, what's your plan there? I mean, that might be a little complicated. That's a very, very good question, Eric. So, so, so far, it's been really easy for us because we're in the Northern California and Southern California. And the, the things that are locally sourced uh, are produce and bread. We used to make our own bread, and then we figured that we're really not bakers, and there's a lot of people that do it better than we do. Uh, they make our own bread, our own recipe, um, but it is uh, 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 locally sourced. And because it has to be fresh and done the same day and all that good stuff. And the same thing with produce. So, so far, it's been, it's been okay. I think we'll be okay in all of California. It's not a problem. If we go, you know, in the West Coast, and predominantly, most of the West Coast will be fine. Um, uh, very good point. How do we do this when you go to areas that don't have local farms? We'll have to kind of figure it out. We do have today on every item, uh, produce item, a, 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 a select, which is what we really want. And there is a second and third source of the same product. In other words, tomatoes. There's a certain kind, certain size that we want. If we can't find it, you could go to number two. That's still okay. And that is approved by the chef. By our, he's the, basically the director of food. So we'll have to put some guidance uh, uh, as a whole to allow you know, a place that doesn't have local farms next to it to be able to get it from as close as possible. Um, and the produce is the only issue really that, that I, I could think about as a concern. The, the cool thing about locally produced, Eric, as you know, is not only is it fresher and, you know, helping the, uh, it's environmentally better, it's actually less expensive. And it's a fallacy that local is not as expensive. It's actually less expensive because there's less freight, there's less storage, there's less refrigeration. So it's actually not just better, it's cheaper too. Yeah. So as a, as a strategy, for, for as a strategy, we want to do it wherever we can. Now, if we cannot in a certain uh, MDA or certain region, we're going to say, "Hey, listen." Well, what we do is we say where we get the stuff. So, so it's the same. It's the same message. Only you know, this comes from you know, hundred miles away rather than being being local. On the supply chain, by the way, and I don't want to delve too much into it, but 
We've done a lot of stuff with very big co-packers now where we get a lot of our sauces, our meats done at very, very big factories that do a phenomenal job. Because I didn't want to go into the commissary business. I didn't want to go into the into food manufacturing. It's a different skill set. We can do it. I mean, it's easy. But it's not what we do. We're really a brand, customer-facing. You know, we go to the customers with food trucks catering online, in the store. We build the network effect. Uh, going into the food manufacturing, it's easy, capital-intensive, but that's not what we do. So we're starting to co-pack a lot of our items uh, in very, very high volume. And these guys do a phenomenal job, whether it's the sauces or the meats. Uh, they, they have incredible quality. They have, you know, all the governmental agencies in their facilities every day doing inspections. They have big equipment. It's more expensive, but it's I'm very, very happy with it. And that will allow us to, from a, again, procedural standpoint or supply chain standpoint, open up anywhere. Because I do these in very, very high volume. We could have any distributor carry our own product. And by the way, we, we negotiate directly with the factories. So we control the, the ingredients. We control the quality. We control the actual price, uh, which is not typical in the company our size. When you're big, much, much bigger, you could do that. But I think people are intrigued with the sector that we're in, and they know that we're scaling. So we're able to actually make these deals now. So I'm really excited. I'm excited about supply chain. I think our food is the best it's ever been today. Thank you for getting into that. And I can't believe we're already almost at an hour and 10 minutes. Uh, I, I, I want to start asking this question to all my guests before going to the speed round, and that is, uh, you know, the, the mission statement here at Restaurant Unstoppable is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. And we plan on transforming the industry by sharing how my guests have transformed and who my guests are. So answer this question. How have you transformed since like 2012, 2013, when you just got into this industry? Who are you today? Who Who is Zade today versus Zade, uh, what, six years ago? <laughs> That's a, that's a great question. So, um, I guess, I guess, um, I always valued, you know, uh, culture and people. Um, but I, I think I established a new level of appreciation for really working with the right people and uh, building the right culture. Um, so that's probably one of my biggest, biggest things, especially in the food business, learning that kind of the hard way. Um, and, you know, so we look for, uh, personality, we look for, you know, transparency, honesty, and skill is secondary to me. Honestly, at this stage, actually, in the corporate office, I don't have anybody that has food background, and I hate to say it, but it's all younger people and uh, with a different work ethic, with a different view, um, uh, and I don't mean it in a negative way, in as much as, you know, we, uh, that to me is a lot more, the, the personality and the cultural fit is a lot more important than what they know and what they don't know. And uh, uh, you could train. You could train people to do anything. Yeah. I mean, as long as they're willing to train. So that's probably the biggest thing. Thank you for getting into that. And uh, we're taking one more break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. So Revel Systems is a complete POS built to help grow your expanding business. I stand by Revel, and I can tell you why it's so great, but I'd rather get my man Colton Schultz, who's with Grand Junction Subs in the Craft Cave, to tell you why he loves Revel. We have been working with Revel for several years, who has partnered with us to streamline our operations. We have implemented delivery management, employee management, sales reporting, kitchen display screens, and so much more. We also utilize mobile order takers and kitchen display systems that are extremely customizable. Nice. So if there's just one thing that you love the most about Revel Systems, what would it be? It's definitely their vast reporting abilities on the back end. We utilize a lot of the reports such as speed of service, taxes, sales reports, labor reports, 
it's all there to help you run your business. Beautiful. Guys, and if you're listening to this, Revel works with businesses that are looking to implement cutting-edge technology that helps increase revenue, improve efficiencies, and enhance experience of their employees and their customers. To learn more, head over to revelsystems.com slash unstoppable. All right, we're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Um, I would say uh, honesty is the is the biggest thing. And the other thing is I'm a kind of a doer, so I'm a never. So having the two together, I think, works well. What is your biggest weakness? Um, I move too fast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I break a lot of things doing it. Um, the other thing is I probably over-trusting maybe, you know, um, I kind of give credit, uh, more credit than I need to in certain people or occasions, but, uh, but yeah, probably I, I move way too fast, I think. What's one question you ask or thing you look for during the job interview? Um, look for personality, um, friendly people, people that have humility, I think is very important. And I like people that really have a commitment, long-term commitment. What is your biggest challenge today you know um, like we said earlier i think it's it's maintaining the culture when you grow with, with with growing fast and making sure that you have the same value system and the same uh, uh bonds between the employees that uh, you would have at, at a, a bigger scale share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team this is a core value a way to be a way to act transparency what is always put it in one word, just transparency, just be open. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's common within your four walls, not common throughout the industry. Um, be very open to customers. Take their questions, answer them completely honestly. And the other thing is, you know, being in the food business, generosity is very important. I love it. What is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? I have a lot of books. Um, uh, if I was to pick one, I, I'm going to give you a couple of them, actually, if you don't yeah, mind. For, uh, the, the, for, for strategy, and this works a lot in the food business, is a book, uh, War and Peace, which is a very, very popular book. Um, it, that's really incredible for strategy. And in terms of like tactics and understanding market positioning, um, there's a book called The Discipline of Market Leaders. And I think that's really cool to understand where do you fit in any industry. Uh, but and for us, we kind of, I looked at that model to figure out where we are really in the food business. So I know War and Peace is on Audible. I'm not sure if uh, Discipline, uh, what was that second book? Discipline of what? Modern Leaders? The Discipline of Market Leaders. Market Leaders. Uh, definitely head over to yeah. audible.com slash unstoppable to get uh, War and Peace. Uh, if you are not leveraging Audible, it is a game changer. And the next question I have for you is, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Um. Probably understanding the customer. A lot of people, you know, open up a restaurant and do the food that they think that they want to do and hope that's going to stick. Uh, and the customer behavior has changed significantly, like we are talking earlier in the last five or six years. So it's um, really, really key to be in with the times in terms of how people eat. What is one piece of technology you've adopted that has had a huge impact on your operation? Um. Oh man, we have a lot of technology. We use <laughs> probably twelve different apps right now. There's there's just a whole bunch of them. Probably uh, one of the better ones that actually had the biggest impact is 
is being able to get the pricing of our products live. What tool are you what using for that? We, we use Plate IQ for that. Plate IQ? It's a, a tool that yeah allows you to actually scan the document, scan the invoice, and gives you the, on a dashboard what the price is per item. That's been just phenomenal. So you're other gonna, than obviously a lot of customer facing tools, you know, which is online ordering and stuff. Uh, so you already mentioned uh, Zenput. I'll put the link in there. We'll put Plate IQ. And what are you using for online ordering? Uh, for we use Revel actually. Revel is our POS system, and we use Revel for online ordering for our individual needs. We use a company called Zappler for our catering online ordering. Awesome. And Revel is a current sponsor. Great company. Uh, do be sure to check them out. Love Revel. So the last question I have for you, it's a doozy. Are you ready for it? Well, I hope so. <laughs> if, you, if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind. For the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three things you know to be true be? Oh, my God. All right. So I, I got to say be transparent, be open. That's very, very key. Um, I would say focus. Uh, focus as in like run your own race. Figure out exactly what you're trying to do and don't do other stuff. Uh, it's very easy to get distracted in the, in the, in the restaurant business or any business. Um, and lastly, it's really all about people. I mean, I would say just make sure that you surround yourself with the right people, hire slow. Um, and and uh, really people are, are, are what makes and breaks things. Be transparent, stay focused, and know that it's all about people. Thank you so much, Zaid. I've loved this conversation. Uh, let the folks at home know, how can we connect with you if uh, we have any questions, maybe we want to come join your team? Uh, what's the best way to connect? Uh, it would be on uh, our website, sajstreeteats.com. Or on my email, which is Zaid, Z-A-I-D, at SargeStreetEats.com. And I welcome, we're hiring. So if anybody likes to enjoy some good food and, and, and wants to break some things, let's do it. And there's a lot, a lot of opportunity with this restaurant group opening, doubling in size in the next two years. So this is a good team to be on. And um, we wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who is one operator, somebody that you admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? Oh, you know, I, I, I got to admit, um, I think uh, Steve Els, I think, from Chipotle. Okay. I don't know if you talked to him or not. But I have not. I'm loving it. Uh, <laughs> he's just in, insane with what he did and his story and all of that. I don't know him personally, but uh, the other person that's really cool I got to meet one time is Ron Shea from Panera. Okay. Those are like, these are legends in the, in the business. Really so setting the bar high for beyond. me. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Look yeah. out, guys. I'm coming <laughs> after you. And again, just thank you so much, Zaid. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. There is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. Thank you, Eric. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much. Cheers. All right, there we go. Another episode in the archive here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you all found value. Before I let you go, I have to remind you, please sign up for the Restaurant Unstoppable email list. That is where you will never miss an episode and you get the behind the scenes of what's going on here, where I'm at, what's on my mind, and what the future of Restaurant Unstoppable looks like, and you can have an influence on that. Don't forget to connect on social media. That's slash Restaurant Unstoppable on Facebook and at Eric Cacciatore, E-R-I-C-C. 
A-C-C-I-A-T-O-R-E on Instagram. But the most important thing you can do to support this mission of inspiring, empowering, and transforming our industry is by sharing this sucker with anybody and everybody you know who's aspiring to be great in the industry. All right. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out. Peace out.